0: reading, and uh, there I'm on, right? And uh, books have become great friends these last nine months. One book in particular in the the last uh, week and a half that's been a great refreshment to me is entitled Reformation Women, 16th Century Figures Who Shaped Christianity's Rebirth. And in church history, we, we know about Zwingli and Calvin and Luther, but what about their wives and their sisters and other women that were a part of the church that shaped the church through uh, behind the scenes ministry. What did these women play in the reformation of the church? And right at the preface of this book, the author, uh, Rebecca, and I'm not gonna pronounce her last name because I'll get it wrong, but Rebecca writes, what would Luther have been without his Katie? At best, he would have been trudged along with his work, sleeping alone and depressed in the stinky sheets that he later described, described in a letter. And with his wife, he was energized, encouraged, and clean. He was able to better connect with other people, maintain his health, get feedback on his writing, and enjoy a pleasant home. And Katie facilitated and furthered the Reformation. And we learn, in, at least I have so far in this book, I haven't finished it yet, but, but women were essential and part of the church history and the Reformation of the church. But also we learn as we read the Bible, um, just as Sarah and, and Deborah and Esther and the New Testament Marys, they helped shape Bible history. And so in this book, Carolyn Bowles writes, Wherever true Christianity has emerged, there women have been found to pour their early and willing tribute. Often what we find in the Gospels is that women believe first, and then they're ready to, to, and willing to share and to serve. And, and history seems to bear this out repeatedly. Biblical Christianity values women and their contributions to Christ's church and to society. And our church, if I reflect just on Edgewood Bible Church, would not be the church we are today without women and their sacrifice for Christ in the furtherance of the gospel. So I ask, was the, was the gospel only for men? Would Jesus only focus on those that looked like him, or were there others who needed redemption? When we look at the cultural understanding of women during Jesus' age, we find that there were, they were viewed as second-class citizens, most rabbis would never teach a woman so really in in every possible way jesus was different than those rabbis he he not only came to heal the non-jew and 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 to heal uh, the unclean and the broken and the ostracized but he came to share the gospel with women and it causes us to ask is the gospel even just for good people is is jesus only for the clean and the upright and the answer is emphatically no there's, there's no one good. We've all fallen short, and Christ came for all. And that leads to my main idea here this morning. So if you write anything down, this is a short one. It's a good one. The gospel isn't for clean, moral, and good people. The gospel is for sinners. Short and sweet. Really sweet. So we're going to look at the last section here of Luke chapter 7. So if you have your Bibles, turn with me to Luke chapter, chapter 7. We're going to start in verse 36. If you're unfamiliar looking at a Bible, the large numbers are the chapter numbers that divide. The smaller numbers are the verse numbers. And we're going to look at verses uh, 36 of Luke chapter 7 through the end of the chapter, and you're going to scoot into chapter 8 just for a brief moment at the end here. So, four points as we walk through this passage this morning Uh, first, the, the open meal, second, the unexpected guest. Third, the compassion of Jesus, and last, the persevering women, and I'll I'll highlight those as we go through. So look with me at Luke chapter 7, just at verse 36 here as we begin. One of the Pharisees asked him to eat with him, and he went into the Pharisee's house and reclined at the table. I'm going to pause there. The Greco-Roman Symposium the the time was like a meal that they would gather around and have discussions, and that's what we read here in Luke's Gospel. They would gather for this meal, the food was eaten, and an extended discussion would then follow. Those that attended reclined around the three sides of a central table on couches, probably the height of our stage, maybe a little lower, and leaving the fourth side open for, for servants to to access the table, and, and bread and wine would be on the table along with the main dish that you would dip your hand into with bread and also eat together. And they would sit and, and kind of land on their side, facing the table, and, and their body and their feet angling away from the table. And, and these were special meals that were hosted in the courtyard, kind of an, an open um, area, and, and uninvited guests could, could, could come by, could, could be around what's going on. And they could sit by the walls and, and hear the conversation. They could eavesdrop. They can even contribute to the conversation. The poor, the uninvited, would hang around in these meals, hoping that they would get some kind of a scrap later, some leftovers. So with this in mind, it's easier then to picture how this story unfolds for us. So this is the open meal. Second is the unexpected guest. Look at verse 37. And behold, a woman of the city who was a sinner, when she learned that he was reclining at the table in the Pharisee's house, brought an alabaster flask of ointment, and standing behind him at his feet, weeping, she began to wet his feet with her tears and wiped them with her hair of her head and kissed his feet and anointed them with the ointment. So picture with me a woman bustling through the dusk in a small village of primitive homes, and, and she cautiously is carrying a small flask as she goes. Heading toward the largest house, it seems, in the town, she sees candlelight in a large open portico. Many town and synagogue leaders are reclining on mats, talking loudly, eating together. A crowd of envious onlookers, the uninvited, hover close by, wanting to see, wanting to hear what's happening. And as she nears the house, the onlookers try to stop her, try to to keep her back, but she presses closer, and she walks right into the midst of the dinner at the house of Simon the Pharisee that we will find out. And her face reflects worry. Her eyes search through the crowd of men. Initially, the men are not aware of her. And then a, a menacing silence spreads throughout the crowd. Men seem to become uneasy now. They look away, down maybe at their, their food in which they dip their fingers to eat. Worried looks appear in some of their faces. It's a different kind of worried look from the woman's. This woman is well-known. She's famous in the city. Scriptures state the reason for her fame, she was a sinner. A few men quietly slip out, trying not to be noticed by her, and others desperately hope that she won't indicate that she knows them. Still many others have ignored her. They recognize it. They feel the guilt because of her profession. This woman comes to the house fully aware Of her sins. She had a reputation in the city. But the city didn't know her failures as well as she did. She probably forgot more sins than they would ever be aware of. She knew the deep pain. She understood brokenness of a life apart from the mercy of God. She knew her debt before God, a debt that she could never repay. And she knew there was only one, only one person who could forgive her. But the woman's expression noticeably changes to relief and joy because she sees the one that she's looking for. She sees Jesus. And with unusual boldness and Seemingly unaware of her cultural wrongdoing, she goes right to him. And standing behind him, she begins to weep. Her hands clutch the the glazed alabaster jar. It is her most valuable possession. For it contains her, her life savings and her tools for work. In the form of a very expensive perfume. And noticing as she stands there her profuse tears have begun to wet his feet, she kneels down, unwraps, and uses her long, loose hair, which is a hallmark of her profession, and she begins to wipe his feet. Now this is horrifying to the crowd. Women are to never take their hair down in public. And this progresses into kissing his feet. But no one would call these kisses sensuous. Rather, they're a childlike, adoring quality about it. Then, without hesitation, she takes the thin neck of the perfume jar and tilts it towards Jesus' feet. I can imagine aroma of lilies wafting across the room. At this point, I'm sure the men are relieved that she's avoided them and begin muttering louder in their hearts. Simon, the host, as we'll find out, is appalled, is shocked at her. He's also drawing some conclusions about his guest, Jesus, who is the reason for the gathering. It might be more accurate to say that Simon is drawing more evidence for a conclusion that he's already reached about Jesus. To this Pharisee, she's like an infectious disease. And Jesus accepts her. He allows her to touch him, to weep over him. The men grow uneasy with this kind of acceptance. Mutter, under their breath with disgust. This woman was a notorious sinner. Maybe she was an adulterer. Most likely she was a prostitute. Her sins were many. She sold her services for money. She had turned herself into an object, and in so doing, she betrayed the image of God in herself and in every man she was with. But Jesus doesn't push her away. He surprisingly isn't disgusted by her. Her coming to this dinner party shows that Jesus is Lord over sin and guilt and forgiveness and righteousness. Her coming shows that God wants all types of people in his kingdom. See, he didn't come just for the clean and the upright, but for sinners, for the unrighteous. This is another example of a story that Luke would never make up on his own. Remember back in chapter one, he's instructed by Theophilus, possibly a Roman general, most likely, and we read there in that explanation that he's writing an orderly account of the man Jesus. And he would never have made this up just to add it to the account Luke's a Christian and he wants this man to be a Christian and this story would be hard to believe hard to accept so why does Luke include this story in the account why write this because it really happened God saves prostitutes God saves those who know their sins are many he doesn't come for the cleaned-up people who believe they don't need God. See, Luke, as we've already seen, picks up these stories involving tax collectors and sinners and prostitutes. And it's as if he's testing the reader. Have we grasped the magnitude and length of God's grace? How do we respond when a notorious sinner touches Jesus. Do we celebrate God's grace or are we scandalized into not believing in Jesus? The story and many others in this gospel show us that the grace of God is uncomfortable and embarrassing. See, Jesus' grace disrupts social situations. And and we as a church don't want to be disrupted. we tend to regard marginalized people in this world as a problem to be handled. We put up with them like an annoyance, but seldom do we embrace them. But Jesus doesn't view these people that way. Instead, he offers them grace, unearned favor. She had most likely heard Jesus teach about grace earlier. Perhaps she was there when Jesus taught in Matthew's gospel that happened earlier in Matthew 11:28. 28. Come to me, all who labor and are heavy laden, and I will give you rest. Take my yoke upon you and learn from me, for I am gentle and lowly in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. She had heard Jesus preach, and she had heard the hope he, he shared for those that repent of their sins. And what we find here in Luke's Gospel, chapter 7, is we find repentance on display. It was a grateful love that compelled her to come to Jesus, bringing her alabaster jar of perfume, her tool of choice for her work. You know, she wouldn't need it anymore, she was changing her profession. It was the most expensive thing she owned. Once used to draw men closer to herself, now used to anoint her Savior. And she comes broken and yet healed at the same time. She knows she doesn't belong and yet she feels more accepted than she ever has. Friends, perhaps this is you this morning. Life hasn't gone the way you hoped. And your life, as you reflect now, is broken. It feels like a mess. You feel distant and lost. And perhaps you've convinced yourself, you believe that you t- you are too far gone for Jesus, that you've sinned too much, you've sinned too great, that you've gone too far, and you believe that Jesus would want nothing to do with you, that you've pushed him away too much. But it isn't true. Jesus isn't disgusted. And I was thinking this morning as I reflected back 18 years ago, beginning youth ministry in my church that I grew up in, and in the first three months, I had two young women come for help. Both had begun cutting themselves Because they wanted to release the pain they had bottled up. And they were lost. They were confused and hurting. And they believed they were too far gone for the grace of God. And they were hungry for peace. They were thirsty for healing. But they couldn't believe that Jesus would want them. They felt too dirty, too too lost too too far gone it didn't seem true that Jesus would want them that he would take their mess and listen friends he may seem too good to understand right now but he isn't too good to be true his grace may seem impossible but it doesn't mean that it's too good to be true See, Jesus really did come. He really did sit there with a notorious sinner crying over him, anointing him, and worshiping him. This really happened. And Jesus accepted her based on her faith. Nothing more, nothing less. So friends, you don't have to drink your life away. You don't have to smoke weed to dull the pain. You don't have to run away and live in sin. You don't have to believe the lies. Jesus is calling you to himself. And I would urge you to turn to him this morning. It may seem too good to be true, but Jesus isn't too good to be true. And you may feel like the unexpected guest this morning, but Jesus is calling you to himself through the preaching of his word. And so I implore you to accept it, to believe it to turn from your sin and place your faith in him, to come to Jesus this morning. This woman is an unexpected guest for this dinner party. See, Simon thought maybe Jesus would be good entertainment for himself and his guests, but now the party's gone in a different direction than he planned, and Jesus is gonna show his compassion for sinners. That's my third point. Look at verse 39, the compassion of Jesus. Now when the Pharisee who had invited him saw this, he said to himself, if this man were a prophet, he would have known who and what sort of woman this is who's touching him, for she is a sinner. And Jesus answering said to him, Simon, I have something to say to you. And he answered, say it, teacher. A certain moneylender had two debtors, one owed 500 denarii and the other 50. When they could not pay, he canceled the debt of both. Now which of them will love me more? In his mind thinks if only Jesus was the true prophet, then he would know she's a sinner. What do you think Jesus should do with a sinner? I'm guessing this Pharisee has different thoughts about what Jesus should do with the sinner. For him, you keep a sinner away. You keep him at arm's length because he, he doesn't realize that he's a sinner too. Perhaps you do the same thing. Perhaps you think the same way in your mind. By the way, Jesus can read your mind at any point. And you believe that this world is made up of two types of people, the sinners and the non-sinners. And you decided that you're on the side of non-sinner, and those people, whoever those people are in your mind, those are the sinners. Well, Jesus gives this short parable to you also. See, the debtors in this parable are, of course, metaphorical for sinners. Both have a considerable debt because a denarius was a day's wage. It would have been 50 days to eliminate one person's debt and 500 days for the other. And these were incredible debts. And what Jesus was teaching was that, according to conventional outward morality, the woman was a 500 sinner and Simon was a 50 sinner. So outwardly, she was 10 times as sinful. So yes, Simon, you're you're a whole lot better than this prostitute. She's dirty. Her, Her innocence has been defiled innumerable times. She has been wallowing in sin, but you, with your rigid morality, have kept yourself from these things, and you're still dirty. One of them had ten times the volume of outward sin, but they were both guilty on the inside. The superior Pharisee had the same problem as the lowly prostitute. But Simon didn't have the slightest understanding of this. Simon views himself as the non-sinner. He's the religious guy. His main thrust in his life is to stay away from those sinners. He's one of the select few. He's he's special. He's earned it, which to me is, is phenomenal to think through. The irony that this Jewish leader doesn't even understand his Bible doesn't even understand his history. How did Israel get chosen? Because they were so great, right? And mighty and holy and strong. No. Deuteronomy seven, for you are a people holy to the Lord your God. The Lord your God has chosen you to be a people for his treasured possession out of all the peoples who are on the face of the earth. It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord set his love on you and chose you. For you were the fewest of all people But it is because the Lord loves you. See, God doesn't see something in them. Something good, and then he chooses them. No, it's sheer grace that God chose. And when you when Jesus comes in the world, when we read of Jesus in the gospel, where do we find him? He's around sinners. He's calling tax collectors to himself. He's healing unclean people. He's helping Roman soldiers. He's, he's letting prostitutes touch him. He's spending time with them, and he's instructing them. And for the Pharisee, they, they believe that Jesus doesn't know how to deal with sinners, that he's got it all wrong. No, he knew how to deal with sinners. That's why he's letting them touch him. And that's why he's talking to Simon. Why he even accepted an invitation to, to his house. To be be around religious sinners, and the self righteousness of Simon is terrifying, isn't it? Have you thought this same way about people before? Are there humans that are made in the image of God? For those who recognize themselves to be unclean and unworthy, Jesus came to save. See, the prostitute understands salvation. The Pharisee doesn't. He should have been the one teaching on Deuteronomy 7. And the nature of the Lord's gracious choice of Israel. But he doesn't get it. But the prostitute gets it. She seems to grasp the true nature of salvation. She understands grace better than him. Her mind understands which affects her heart than which affects her hands, and we see the display here. She gets it. It's unavoidable. She understands the gospel. But Simon is rebuked here in verses 44 through 46. He doesn't get it. Yeah, he could answer Jesus' question about the parable. But if you're, you're wanting to know who the greater theologian in the group, other than Jesus, it's the woman on her knees, worshiping Jesus. Simon could answer the question right, but he's not been forgiven. He doesn't love because he did not think that he needs to be forgiven. It's an old, it's, it always is a dangerous place to be when you look with greater contempt on the sins of others than you look on the wickedness of your own heart. Jesus isn't saying that Simon didn't need forgive us as much as the woman, but that Simon needed forgive us more than the woman because he had no clue of his sin. See Simon couldn't see what she had become because all he could see was what she once was. And what a dark place to be. Are you more like Simon? Or the woman? Who are you more prone to be? Do you present your sins as a small matter while magnifying the sins of others? You know, when we don't repent regularly, turning away from the sin of gossip, the sin of pride, the sin of idolatry, and we hide them, Little by little, we become people and families and a church that becomes loveless. Is our church family loving? Do we allow and embrace people to come join us like this woman? Or are we standoffish like Simon? Are we a loving people? Spurgeon said, self-righteousness can never serve after the same fashion as love. Jesus doesn't say that her love saved her. She wasn't saved because of her outpouring of devotion or her tears or the anointing of Jesus. It wasn't her love... That, that saves her. It was her trust in him. Faith saved her. She knew that Jesus was the only one who could forgive her. And she demonstrates her faith that is already present by worshiping him here. Friends, if our justification is by love, then we're all going to hell. But Jesus is saying the fact that this woman trusts me and believes in me and put her faith in me is evidenced by her love for me. Are you not convinced? Look at verse 50. He said to the woman, your faith has saved you. He's explicit. It was her faith, saving faith, evidenced now by love. And lovelessness suggests faithlessness one author said her coming was not the ground for a pardon she came to seek but the proof of a pardon she came to acknowledge and Simon's lack of love to Jesus shows that he didn't know who Jesus was and he didn't know his own heart he didn't seek a pardon because he refused to acknowledge that he needed one but she gladly receives a pardon because she knew herself. Friend, can you imagine with me God pardoning all of your sins? Just imagine that. All of your sins. Even those that are faint memories now of a lifetime ago. God can pardon those sins Not just the big sins either, but those continual small sins that seem to go unnoticed by anyone else. God can pardon those too. If only we would turn to him in faith and trust in him alone. What would that like be? What would that be like for you? How would your life be different if you trusted in Christ? You know, it's not like God closes his eye to your sins, saying, yeah, you're good now. I won't look at it anymore. The Bible says that God, with his eyes wide open, sees your sins. His eyes are more open and more aware of your sin than your eyes. And he forgives you of your sin because of Jesus Christ. And we place our faith in him. He pardons us. He pardons all of our sins. And that's what we see here the response of this prostitute in Luke 7. Friend, what would it what would bring you to love God fully and freely like we see here with this woman? Believe. Believe in Jesus Christ that He would forgive you of your sins because of Jesus and what He will do, what He will do here in Luke's Gospel of His death and the cross for your sins and rising again on the third day. See, I understand that repentance may be costly for you. It always is. Repentance costs this woman her livelihood. She could never go back to that life again. But she would be infinitely ahead now because she was redeemed and made new because of the eventual blood of Jesus Christ. Friends, how do you, how do you deal with those sins that you don't, don't want anyone else to know about? Do you try to cover them up because you fear what others might think? Maybe your fear is real because people would judge you. You you would feel condemned. You You would feel like you're looked down upon. And if that's you, this woman here has something to teach you. She didn't care if she were to be judged because she already found her hope in Jesus Christ. The one who knew all of her. All of her, all the way deep down, he knew every last sin, even the ones that she had long forgotten about. And because of her faith, he forgives her. He's saying, "My child, I love you. Your sins are forgiving." And isn't that astounding? That Jesus can forgive all of our sins. And 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 they're astounded in this story. Those around the table, they they're shocked. You know, they say, who is this who even forgives sins, right? You know, he said that earlier in Luke's gospel. And what Jesus is doing here, he's putting down a down payment for her sins in that moment, and soon, very soon, he would pay for them on the cross. See, the prostitute was saved on credit, but you and I, friends, are saved on debit. Jesus has died on the cross for our sins, and we draw on that bounty, So don't fear what others might think about you. Don't let that stop you from coming to Jesus. And then look at that last phrase there from Jesus to the woman. He says, your faith has saved you. Go in peace. Go in peace. Could that not submerge an ocean of trials and pain for us? Go in peace. That's the sure word that he speaks to all of us who trust in him for salvation. Go in peace, friends. Go and serve Jesus in peace. Well, the last point here is the persevering women, And I wanted to sneak into chapter 8 just for a moment. We end where we began with the importance of women in the ministry of, of Jesus in the church. And, and I want to look quickly at just these three verses. We'll come back to them in a few weeks. Look at verse 1. Soon afterward, he went on through cities and villages, proclaiming and bringing the good news of the kingdom of God, and the twelve were with him, and also some women who had been healed of evil spirits and infirmities, Mary, called Magdalene, from whom seven demons have gone out, and Joanna, the wife of Chuza, Herod's household manager, and Susanna, and many others, who provided for them out of their means. Unlike every rabbi of this day, Jesus included women in his ministry. One commentator, Morris, said the rabbis refuse to teach women and generally assign them to an inferior place. But Luke in the New Testament declare that women have equal access to the blessings of grace and salvation. And whatever distinctions the Bible does make between male and female roles, there is no distinction when it comes to being co-heirs in grace through Jesus Christ. And I want you to understand, friends, the Christian church would never have gotten off the ground were it not for women. The pattern for Christian ministry was for some to do the preaching, for for men that God calls and for others to serve, that there would be preaching, that's everyone else. And so the job of every Christian, male and female, is to serve and to give so that the word goes forth. And here we learn of Mary and Joanna and Susanna and many others. And every Christian should do, do one of those things preach or support preaching. And the aim of our mission is to spread the word of Christ to those who have never heard. See, this group of women seem, as you go back into Luke's gospel to the 23rd and 24th chapter, they're still together when they come to the end. These also seem to be the same women who are mentioned mentioned in Matthew and Mark's gospel who follow Jesus, not only in Galilee, but also to Jerusalem. They are the same who stood by our Lord at the cross and the same who come to the tomb that Sunday morning and these women were vital to the Lord's ministry and women have been vital to the church ever since one last thing here as I end I find it encouraging that after Jesus turns to, to Simon to rebuke him he, he says therefore I tell you her sins which are many are forgiven he 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 teaches Simon, but he doesn't stop there. He turns then to the woman. She heard him say this to Simon, but then he turns to her and says to her, your sins are forgiven. Why? Why does he do this? My hunch is because when we have seen what we are in the mirror, sometimes it's very difficult to believe that we can be forgiven and that God can still love us. And here Jesus is saying, just in case you're concerned, dear one, you have been forgiven. Don't believe the lies from your heart and from others. Believe me. In church, we need to learn this truth. We need to learn this and apply this truth to our own hearts. We want to protect our reputations and we want to look good and be highly thought of. And those thoughts won't protect us on the last day. See, if we're hanging on to our good thoughts about ourselves instead of Jesus, we'll be sitting with Simon the Pharisee, while this woman will be clothed in the righteousness of Jesus Christ. So don't try to justify yourself through your reputation. Throw yourself in the mercy of Jesus, and he will take you in. Trust in him. Continue to trust in him. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for your clarifying word this morning, which brings hope and peace to our souls. Thank you for the conviction of your words to our hearts. And we acknowledge sometimes, God, that your compassion and grace is sometimes hard to believe because we live in this world. Because we we seldom find such compassion and grace with fellow humans. But it's true. You are real, and you really give us grace. We ask that you would strengthen us by your grace to live in this world with compassion and love for others that are outside of the household of faith, and especially those inside. May we be compassionate people as we leave this place. May we be bold evangelists of your gospel. May we love you more than we love ourselves. May we reflect on your gospel, be encouraged and strengthened on what you've done for us, and may that flow out in our love for you and our love for each other. And we'll be sure to give you all the praise and glory as you save more through your ministry of the word. We pray this all in Jesus' name, amen.